Hello, I'm Katie Balls and welcome to a special edition of Women with Balls, sponsored by Lloyd's Banking Group. Today, I'm joined by a panel of guests to talk about an issue that affects many people up and down the country, if not all, and particularly in my generation, the housing crisis. Over the past year of intermittent lockdowns, many of us have spent more time staring at the four walls of our living room than we ever thought possible, let alone desirable. One of the big factors affecting a person's pandemic experience is the type of accommodation they're in. 8.4 million people in England are living in unaffordable, insecure or unsuitable homes. 2.5 million adults are living with their parents because they cannot afford to move out. Only one third of the so-called millennials are on the property ladder. The housing crisis can be particularly acute for women, with research by the Women's Budget Group finding it disproportionately affects females as a result of trends in lower pay as well as family pressures. Single mothers represent two-thirds of all statutory homeless families. There are various schemes underway to help fix the problem of unaffordable housing, promises to build more homes, slightly derailed by a mutant algorithm, a stamp duty holiday, and perhaps most promising for first-time buyers, a new mortgage guarantee system where potential homeowners only need a 5% deposit. So to discuss the persistent problems and the potential solutions, I'm delighted to be joined by Thangam Devonair, the Shadow Secretary of State for Housing, Natalie Elphick, the Conservative MP for Dover, and Chair of the New Homes Quality Board, and Esther Dextra, the Managing Director of Intermediaries at Lloyd's Banking Group. Thank you all for joining me today. Thangam, to start with, could you just update listeners on the current problems a first-time buyer would face when it comes to the housing market? So... We've got a real crisis in affordability. And actually, that's not just in buying your own home. That's also whether you rent in the private sector. And it also varies according to where you live in the country. And that means a crisis whereby if you are on a median wage, if you're on a, you know, not the very bottom, but sort of on a median wage, you will struggle in most places in the country to be able to buy. Uh, That's even worse for women. And you will also find it very difficult to rent a home as well. Now, that means that there's two problems. If you're paying a high rent, if a lot of your income is going on rent, it's going to be very difficult for you to save for a deposit. And then depending on where you live, the price of housing may be either very, very high and out of reach. And in fact, someone said to me recently, if you wanted the bank of mum and dad to get you a deposit on a home in London, they'd need to be a very, very rich mum and dad. But actually, that's a problem throughout the country if there is a difficulty in supply, which very often there is. And we've got great pressures on housing. There are lots of people who are spending many, many years waiting either to save up to buy their own home or to be able to get on a council house waiting list. Natalie, do you agree with that? The Conservatives have been power for some time now, but a problem that all governments face is a discussion over a housing shortage. Well, I mean, there is just so much in the housing challenge. And um, I absolutely agree that it is in the rental structure as well as in buying. I mean, what we've seen over more than 15 years is a complete structural change. We've seen home ownership proportionally plummet and private rent in particular absolutely go through the roof. That's unaffordable for many. A lot of people are paying more than I think they should be on a fair rent. Um, So I think both of those issues need to be addressed. We need to help people get on the housing ladder from all generations who haven't been able to access the opportunities that people have had before. And we also need to look at fixing rent too. 
Esther, from I suppose an industry perspective, do you think from where you sit that it's become easier in recent years for uh, loads looking, whether it's, I suppose, renting, but ultimately lots of people do want to go on the property ladder, renting is seen as temporary, or has it become harder? I think it's become harder because saving for a deposit, that's by far the biggest problem. And the fundamental underlying problem is the shortage of supply in the housing market. And there are multiple reasons for that. So saving for the deposit is the biggest one that's become really, really tough, as we discussed. And that is very relevant because if you look over the length, like you said, everybody still has that aspiration to own a home that hasn't changed much over the years, over the decades. And that's good because what we've seen as well is if you look all the way out into retirement, that if you still rent when you retire, about 42% of your pension income will have to go to the rent. Whilst, of course, if you own your home, by then you would hope you have paid off your mortgage and you live, you know, um, housing cost free in that sense. So uh, that's a big difference as well. Yeah, and there's been some quite, at least I found it, depressing research from the Resolution Foundation about how generation rent, so millennials, I think I still count as one, could, could be renting or at least a third in, into old age. Then, how do you think the pandemic has changed the conversation? Do you think it's made these problems more acute? I think it's done two things. First of all, it's the COVID crisis has exposed weaknesses that were already there and really laid them bare. So, for instance, the crisis of high rents means that a lot of people were in a very fragile situation very quickly because they just didn't have savings. Most people didn't have savings of more than £100. And that includes people who were pushed right to the very edge when they suffered either a catastrophic loss when they lost their job, afraid this time last year, or a gradual loss as they went through perhaps being protected initially by the furlough and then unfortunately more people were being made redundant as we came into the autumn so I think it's done that the other thing is of course it has pushed more people into that which which I'm sort of starting on there that pushed more people into fragility it's into arrears into struggling to pay either a mortgage or rent or not completely and that's difficult now I think that is illustrative of what was going on underneath which is that crisis as Natalie said you know more and more people renting and at very high prices but also I think it speaks to a really imbalanced housing market that isn't allowing people to make active choices about whether they're renting or whether they're buying and at times that work for them and their families that was already there I think the other thing is very practical I don't know how Anyone could possibly want there to be homes which have got no outdoor space or which haven't got space for children to do homework. And then last year, as a constituency MP, my heart has been going out every day to my constituents who have been living in cramped accommodation with no outdoor space. It's been absolutely horrendous for them. That was a problem that was already there, but the crisis has made it much worse. Thang, and just just on that, you've highlighted the particular challenges facing single mothers with regard to property. And you were talking previously about how during the pandemic, particularly those who are in cramped accommodation have suffered the most. Sometimes the rules too, you know, when there's been limits on exercise, there has been a sense that perhaps the people coming up with the rules are the ones who have large gardens and some of these problems slip through. And I wonder, do you think similarly when it comes to the housing policy there's a problem where the people making these decisions often have a a home setup which isn't the you know such as a I suppose a high proportion of single mothers deciding the policy and and that affects how it's developed 
I, it's, it's interesting, actually, because I was looking at the gender pay gap statistics yesterday at different companies, and that was particularly interesting. I was really pleased to see that Lloyds had reported, even though they actually didn't need to uh, last year. I, and I'm seeing a sort of gradual improvement at the numbers of women at those higher paid decision making roles, which is good because we do need women's voices in the room, because when we're not in the room, things do get missed. And they actually things that get missed include things that would also benefit men, but we are perhaps more likely to notice to point out. Now, I think that should include the ability to at least pay attention to what's there for single mothers, because single mothers over the last year have been the group that have been most likely to be put in precarious situations. But then twas ever thus, unfortunately, before the crisis, as you said, I think in your introduction, Katie, single mothers are the, the highest group, the highest proportion in the statutory homelessness group. And that's for various reasons, which are both a cause and a consequence of other forms of gender inequality. These things are interlinked and what I'd like to see is more diversity and that's not just gender but including gender in financial decision making but also in policy decision making and definitely in housing decision making I'll actually very very struck by this very early on the first time I was staying for a long time in a council flat in which you just felt like this had obviously not been designed by anyone who'd ever had to cook tea for their children because the kitchen was minute and the way the door opened you couldn't see the kids if they were playing in the next room there was no room for the kids to be in the same room as you while you were cooking tea anyone who's ever cooked tea for their children man or woman knows how ridiculous that is but it really showed me what happens when people who care for children when women in particular are excluded from the decision making process on housing Esther do you agree with that yeah I totally agree with that I think we've come a long way in terms of more diversity and inclusivity in terms of financial services but there's still a way to go to represent more groups think more creatively about financial products as well Digitization will actually help because that allows more personalization and you definitely see that throughout the sector a lot more. So I'm very hopeful for the future. And to build actually on the pandemic as well, I think COVID has made us all think about our housing more and that search for space. I think that could be outdoor space, but for some people it's more indoor space. And I think it's all made us rebalance and rethink about what we really value in a home and a house. And to be fair, I think that's also largely driven by the crisis. So whilst you had more of a balanced use of your house beforehand, that real emphasis, real focus uh, made people realise that. So um, yeah, you've definitely seen that search for space. And I suppose when we're then talking about the next steps in terms of what to do about some of the problems we've just discussed, Esther mentioned the fact that deposits are probably the biggest blocker when it comes to getting on the property ladder. Natalie, do you think that the deposit is ultimately the main problem, but rent contributes to that? And and if so, the government have announced this 5% deposit scheme. Do you think that's quite hopeful for this? We know that year after year people still want to own their own home and it is hard for many to get on the housing ladder, particularly if they don't have the bank of mum and dad. So I think it's really important that we have this scheme. I think it's a really great scheme that actually allows people to be able to move forward into home ownership if they don't have that more affluent background. So I think that's very welcome. But I do think we need to look as well at this issue of rental costs and how hard it is for people to save up for the deposits and, and savings levels generally. 
generally, particularly among the younger groups. I mean, those rent costs, I really think that the time has come to look at whether they're fair and affordable. And also the issue of stability, because people should be in a stable and affordable home that's right for them, whether that's in renting or whether that's in home ownership. Yeah, I I recently managed to get a mortgage. It was amazing going from seeing what you spend per month on rent compared to much lower on a mortgage. And obviously it's going towards something. And although it was very positive, it, it did make me almost not feel more resentful but it did put into I suppose focus how much money I had thrown away on rent for you know less nice accommodation and I think what we've seen is that people can afford to pay the rent they could afford to pay less for the mortgage and yet they get turned down for a mortgage on affordability grounds now that says something about the structure of mortgages that says something about the structure of financial regulation and ultimately it says that actually what we're measuring has a disconnect to the real world of how much you can pay for your housing costs every month. So I think it's really important that we make it easier for people who can afford to pay that mortgage payment to get on the housing ladder and to be able to start building up that savings over their whole life as well. Bangham, do you agree with that? Because I suppose one thing is we've heard in the past about this idea of rent controls and they're quite a controversial idea but I suppose it's hard to imagine what exactly you can do to kind of deal with the escalating rents. I think we've got we've got to talk about supply because you know rents are going up and house prices are going up in no small part because of a chronic lack of supply and we know that even three years ago the research commissioned by crisis crisis in the national housing federation put, and carried out by harriet watt university put that at about 4.8 million homes short that's how much we're short of what we actually need to meet supply now some of that will come from retrofit and bringing empty homes back into use but most of it's going to have to come from building quality homes and i think also so that the idea that you can't be assessed for your ability to pay a mortgage which is going to be less than what your rent is at the moment is really problematic I've had a lot of young people talk to me about that but I also think that if we had greater security in the private rented sector and greater flexibility and more affordability across all tenure I think there would be less of a feeling maybe not everywhere but I think there'll be some people who wouldn't necessarily feel that their time in rented accommodation have been a waste I think the frustration often comes and this is bear in mind this is something that you know it, it's people tell me about their experiences now and it's not the same as when I was in my 20s I get that but I think that the fact that private rented sector is often very insecure and often very overcrowded means that you don't feel invested in that space so you're being punished in all directions I think by feeling like well where's my money going because I don't even feel connected to this home because of insecure housing rights and you're paying more than you would be in a mortgage but you can't get into a mortgage because of the money that you're spending on rent I think that is a real triple whammy for for many people on good wages as well but again I want to come up particularly to women and we really need to sort out the problem of supply and other factors as well which influence the differentials between women's income and men's. Yeah and and I suppose also in rented accommodation there's often rules which means you can't properly make it your home in the way that you would want to. Esther I do want to talk about supply and we're going to move on to that shortly but just briefly I suppose from the Lloyds Bank perspective or just more generally what do you think about this idea of, of the fact that someone can pay rent being something that should be taken into consideration because as we've heard from both other panel members it does seem bizarre that you can show you pay more per month yet 
somehow not so much a factor. No, I can understand why that's confusing, but that's regulatory. It's the stress testing, because remember there were times when interest rates shot up significantly, and what a lender has to do, according to the regulation, is make sure that you can pay your mortgage throughout the lifetime of that mortgage, even if interest rates increase significantly. But there is definitely a good debate to be had about the level of those stress testing in terms of interest rate rises because what we've seen for a long long time we're now on a low interest rate which is likely to be around however the crisis you know has created some economic uncertainty so it's always difficult to say that because you know there is a chance you get more inflation and therefore interest rate rises but I do agree the best way for people is to get on the housing ladder. So having the 95% scheme is very good because that means at least the size of the deposit can be less. And therefore you have more availability of that lending in the market, more lenders who are confident they can offer those loans, which is great because that must mean more people can get on if they can save that 5% deposit though. And Natalie, when it comes to supply as an issue... How important do you think it is? I mean, we had the white paper from the government when it came to planning for the future. And there was a plan to increase house supply in more expensive locations. So I think that's one other thing in this, which is when we're talking about affordable housing, we're also talking about desirable housing, which doesn't always (laughs) go together um, in how it's treated. But this was supposed to be done by an algorithm, but then uh, it was decided this was perhaps scarred by the exam algorithm. (laughs) Uh, There's not much trust for these at the moment and it appears it has been changed slightly so now the focus on is on the bigger cities so I was wondering what's your perspective on that? Well I think we uh, might be seeing quite a substantial change in the role of cities coming out of the pandemic and I think that's going to be really interesting to watch how that develops. If we do see a change in terms of where people are working from home, if we see a change in transport patterns then we may see a very different physical landscape in the city centres and we may of course also see a different carbon footprint in terms of our work and life balance. Uh, Supply is important. I think consistency of the level of supply is really important. And part of that is making sure that it's being delivered from a local perspective and that it's actually being delivered where homes are wanted and needed and that they can get delivered on the ground. Those homes need to be of a high quality. But in terms of the supply discussion, I do think there is another discussion to be had over the balance of rent in the system at the moment. This change that I mentioned, this 15-year structural change, has affected about 2.4 million households. And we're building at about, you know, 240-ish upwards a year. So, you know, the scale of the change into private rent is one of the drivers of what's making home ownership unaffordable. And I do think that we should be brave in looking at what a fair rent is and actually considering that whether it's right that people who are in you know, very poor quality accommodation should be overpaying for the accommodation they're in and how we can drive better outcomes for people to be living in secure, affordable, good quality accommodation, whether it's in rent or whether it's in home ownership. Would something like a rent control be, be something you think the government could consider on this? I think we should be looking at whether there is a role for a fair rent structure in areas where the market is structurally imbalanced, where there's a problem with the market. And, you know, we have seen a situation where some of people who are least able to afford it are paying some of 
the highest rents for accommodation that isn't value for money. And I do think we should look again at whether or not we need to do any interventions in that market. And also, we should make sure that people who can get on the housing ladder get on the housing ladder. You know, it's a very, very complex issue that affects people in lots of different ways, the housing challenges that we have at the moment. And there are lots of parts of it that need to come together and, you know, really be looked at again. Esther, how does something like that affect the housing market? Yeah, I think to go back to the supply side, because that's uh, several of us have now, you know, said that is an issue. I think there are some more solutions which are all a bit technical and maybe a bit boring, but very relevant, which is one is small and medium builders. I think bringing them back into market following the previous financial crisis, um, they stepped out of the market and it takes a long time for them to get back. We've supported a housing growth initiatives to support those builders to come back into the market and start delivering extra units of housing. So that's one thing where I think government can help as well to support those builders to get back and increase that capacity. And I think the second thing is the modern methods of construction that people might have heard of where you can build uh, more houses to a very high quality standard uh, faster and just to get the whole system to embrace that more. Thank you. I think a lot of people, well, at least some people listening to this podcast might still think all this feels very far away from the situation they're in, in terms of, yes, there might be some more houses built, but will it really affect affect them? And I wonder, do you think there's a slight problem in the sense that people just do feel quite, or at least the younger generation feel quite despondent about the housing market and where it's going to go? Because, I mean, obviously, it's, it was a different time, but you hear what, I suppose, your parents bought the houses for and what, and what it is now worth. <laughs> and it feels like something that's never going to apply to you individually and then also I suppose more recently we've had the cladding crisis in terms of flats and blocks of flats in the aftermath obviously the tragic events of the Grenfell Tower fire but that has also seen lots of 20-somethings early 30 professionals who used government schemes to buy apartments who now feel as though they are trapped there and they're not getting the help that they need. Well, I mean, it, it, gosh, there's so much to unpack there, Katie. Yeah, I mean, yes, literally, I think some of those young people are trapped because they were encouraged to take part in good schemes, in good faith. They did all the necessary checks. They got all the necessary surveys. And now they found out that their homes are not safe and in many cases value less because of the problem of valuing a home and these problems with the external wall survey form and all of that system of assessment, which means that some homes which are bought in good faith and are otherwise good homes cannot be sold. And people are trapped where they may be living in a, in a small flat and they want to move out, buy a home, realise some of their asset and start a family. Now, I think there's also going back to that I think we need to start from some first principles everybody should have a home but not just any old home it should be a home that is a quality it's secure and it's truly affordable not pretend affordable I think there are lots of different routes that you can get to affordability but that needs to be across all three sectors by that I mean both the owner occupied and the private rented but also the council and social housing association sectors a lot of the people in my patch who are living in private rented accommodation, they want to get into a council-owned property. They see advantages for that, for the time of life that they're in. And if we are going to solve the housing crisis, there is literally no way of solving it that I can see without massive investment on the supply side of council and housing association housing. For a lot of people, that will be exactly what they want, maybe not for the whole of their lives, but for a good chunk of their lives. And that's currently not happening. And that's 
people on my patch, people across the whole country who are paying their council tax, paying their taxes, paying their income tax, paying VAT, but they're festering away in private rented accommodation of poor quality, high expense, with no ability to move into a council house that they want, because they're often on the council lists. I think we come back to quality. That has to include the net zero carbon approach, because we've got a climate crisis and our housing is producing 14% of those carbon emissions. So as we build our country, as we rebuild our country after this awful COVID crisis, we need to be paying attention to the climate crisis and integrate into that whatever homes we do build. And I'm really pleased to see that more and more financial institutions are bringing in green related products for mortgages. We incentivize in the private rented and the owner occupied market, as well as the social market, good quality. And that's got to be on climate resilience as well. And Esther, on that, are you are you seeing, I suppose, more people want thinking about things like sustainability when they're looking at housing yeah absolutely to build on that actually it's a great point and a great way to engage the generation as well that you talked about before so what we would think about is to if you look at it it, when you buy a house to make it retrofit for green you probably have to spend about 10 15 thousand pounds that's a big amount of money and the savings of course take a while to come through because your energy bill will probably be what two three hundred pounds a year less so what we think would be a good idea is to look at the stamp duty regime and say actually could you incentivize people for doing that retrofit up front by doing something with the stamp duty rules so that's one way of engaging I think another idea that we've had is the government has been very successful with pension savings, with auto-enrolment. So that's a way to engage people into savings. And what you want them is to save actually for something. That's for a pension. Why not save for a house? So we've got some ideas around how you could use that to then, you know, secure that deposit for the house. That would be another idea. And Thangam just there was talking about government schemes, Natalie. So what is the role here? Do you think that shows a path uh, in terms of equity? Well, I think that in relation to the new family of help to buys that are coming in, the government is introducing a requirement that the developers will need to be part of the new homes ombudsman, which is something that I'm overseeing coming in as the new homes quality board chair. So it's really important that people can also have confidence that quality is at the heart of the homes that they're buying. It's really important that we make sure that the government schemes are recognising the importance of consumer redress and that consumers can actually get a really good response if they do have problems in their home, which we have seen in recent years. And Esther, just on, I suppose, schemes like Help to Buy, there are lots of people who praise it and say it has helped them get their first home. But there are also plenty of people who point out that it could have had negative side effects. Can you talk us through that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I think very supportive of the uh, New Homes Quality Board as well. I think definitely think that will support quality in the industry. And as with all schemes, I think there's a journey to be had in terms of there were some good elements to it and some elements where you can perhaps reflect and say, did it push up, you know, some prices, people get into bigger houses, did it really support entry-level houses? And I think that's where you can tweak the scheme. So I think in principle, they're good schemes, but you have to reflect and learn and sort of tweak them to make them work best for the market. Now, I'm going to end this podcast by asking you all the same question. If right now you could do a single thing, we're giving you the power, and it's a single decision which you think is 
going to be the thing that is most impactful to helping ease the housing crisis, what would it be? Thangam, do you want to go first? It's hard to narrow it down to a single thing. So over the last half hour, I've been thinking a lot about this. And I think I would like to introduce a legally enforceable principle that housing good quality housing should be a human right. And if you start from that first principle, so everyone involved in housing policy and mortgage policy, architects, housing associations, anybody who has any decision-making power whatsoever has to think about how is this increasing everybody's access to have a decent home, a good quality, truly affordable home. So that would be it. Introduce that principle. Everything else would then flow from that. Great. Esther? Oh, how to build on that? (laughs) I think I will struggle a bit with that. That's great, Thangam. Um, I would build on that by saying that also takes into account the environment, like we said, 14% a contribution of housing to greenhouse gases. So I would say also in a sustainable way. And Natalie, you get the final word. I think housing stability is absolutely the foundation stone, particularly for women when they're looking for housing. But it, it's just so important for everyone in society. So I would like a housing stability target so that 90% of homes at a minimum are in stable tenures over the next 10 to 15 years. And for me, that means that we'll be increasing the numbers of in social housing, we'll be increasing the numbers of home ownership, and we'll be making sure that we're really focusing on people being in stable homes that support them to live the lives that they want to live and actually to really enjoy those lives from a really good quality home. Brilliant. Um, At this point I'd like to thank my panel for all their contributions and to our listeners and to thank you to Lloyds for sponsoring today's podcast.